Let me ask you, if you were to be stuck for a few weeks or even a month or more, where would you choose to be stuck at? Maybe you're thinking of a beach place or a resort that you would want to be stuck at for a few weeks or a month. Here's where I would want to be stuck. I'd want to be stuck at a massive supermarket. That's right, a grocery store. That's where I would want to be stuck. Now, when we moved to Dallas, what was such a grievance in our heart, honestly, was that there was no H-E-B here. That was such a hard thing to deal with. But there's an article that said it's coming in the fall. Plano and Frisco, they're opening up. Kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Fresh tortillas at 9 a.m. Oh, it's going to be so good. So if I was stuck somewhere, I'd want to be at an H-E-B or some supermarket because I can go up and down the aisle and get whatever I need for survival. Plenty of food, plenty of water is available at a supermarket, at a grocery store. So that's where I would be. Can you imagine someone starving to death? at a grocery store, at a supermarket. No, no, we can't imagine that because you'd have to be blinded to the vast amount of resources and nutrition and all the chocolate that is right there at the grocery store. So I want to be stuck in a marketplace. But you know that every single day, you and I, we live in the marketplace of God's abundant life. God's abundant grace. Christ is in us and we are in him. So that means that on the outside, we are fully immersed in the grace and power of God. And Christ dwelling inside of us means that even from within, we are filled with the abundance of God's own life. His power, his presence has been already poured out to you, believer, in Christ Jesus. His spirit has been given freely to you and I. But yet, So many Christians spiritually starve in the marketplace of God's abundant grace, in the super grocery store of his life. Why? Because we're busy, we're distracted, and we have neglected, we have avoided, we have not fully realized the plentiful resources, the life of Christ already given to us, his grace, his power, his presence. So in this series called Rhythms of Grace, we are being invited to take full advantage of the power, presence of God Almighty. In these daily habits and rhythms, we want to become keenly aware of the amazing life, the amazing resource of God already given to you and given to me. We're particularly looking at the rhythms in the life of Jesus and how we can model and embody such rhythms of grace. Last week, we looked at the prayer life of Jesus, the rhythms of Jesus' own prayer life. He often prayed in solitude. He prayed with others. He prayed for others. He prayed for himself. And Jesus would invite us into a daily rhythm of prayer because to pray is to just enjoy friendship with God. That's all it is. It is to enjoy, delight in the intimacy you and I have with God. Jesus lived a prayer for life. Today, I want to look at Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus in the scriptures. The Bible is about God and about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It is a revelation, the self-revelation of God Almighty. That's what the Bible is. This is not a book of good advice. This is a book of good news. And the news is Jesus. The good saving news is Christ Jesus. There's only one hero in the Bible, and it's Jesus And all of the vast stories of the scriptures tell one story of how a king came from a faraway place. And he came to die 
for the people he loved, to redeem, to buy back, to purchase his treasure, the church of Jesus Christ. I know it sounds like a fairy tale, but the only thing, it's, it's better than a fairy tale because it's true. It is true. We see Jesus in the scriptures. You know what else we see? Not only do we see Jesus in the scriptures, we also see Jesus in the scriptures. I know you're thinking, our pastor's a little off today. He hasn't had enough coffee to drink. Here's what I'm saying. Not only do we see Jesus across the pages of scriptures, in the scriptures we see Jesus being immersed in the scriptures. We see Jesus meditating, studying, learning, growing in, proclaiming, quoting the scriptures. Jesus is in the scriptures. Here's a fascinating curiosity that was struck in me this week. So I spent this week chasing this curiosity, and it's been so fun. Even preachers are learners. We're learning every day. And here's my curiosity that I've been chasing this week. Here's a question I want to propose to you. Did Jesus, from birth, know all the scriptures, or did he have to learn the scriptures? Okay, when he lived on earth, did he just know the scriptures or did he have to learn the scriptures? Like, did he come out of the womb of Mary reciting prophet Isaiah? Or did he have to learn the words of the prophet Isaiah? And here's what I think. Now, this is an essential doctrine so you can feel free to disagree with me. Totally good. Here's just what I think. I think Jesus, just like you and I, learned the scriptures while he was on earth. He studied it. He learned the scriptures while on earth. And here's why. Philippians 2 says it like this. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 6 onwards, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Paul is saying Jesus never, ever stopped being God. He was God in heaven. He was God on earth. And he is God today. He never stopped being God. But when he took on a body, this incarnate Jesus, he emptied some of the benefits of being God so that he could be fully human. So uh, he emptied the benefit of never needing food or being hungry or thirsty so that as a human being, he could feel our hunger. He could feel our thirst. He emptied the benefit of never needing sleep so that as a human being, he would need to rest. And I think for that brief moment in history, in his earthly life, Jesus perhaps emptied his omniscience, him knowing everything about all time, just for a brief, because Jesus as a human being learned. Part of the human experience is to learn. So Jesus, as an infant, was taught words. Think about that. The eternal word of God learning words. His mom and dad teaching him how to form sentences, teaching him how to walk, how to run, how to be a carpenter, how to have mannerisms, how to behave at the dinner table. Jesus is being taught these things. Jesus would have been taught and would have learned just like any Jewish boy in his day. Usually, Jewish boys would begin to learn scriptures at the age of five. And then by the age of 10, they would learn the Mishnah or the Jewish law. And then by age 13, they would learn how to fulfill all of those laws. 
By age 15, they will learn the Talmud, which is the Old Testament commentaries. And so all the boys would gather and read scripture and study scripture. And I wonder if Jesus too studied scriptures. Why? Because Luke says about Jesus that the boy grew up. He was God, but he was also a boy at one point. Jesus, the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. The eternal son of God was a boy who once grew up. Remember that story later on in Luke 2 where Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple as custom and then they don't come back with him. They lose Jesus. So dads, if you've ever not known where your kids were, here's some Father's Day comfort for you. Even Mary and Joseph lost Jesus and that's a bigger deal than our own kids, okay? <laughs> they lost Jesus for a certain time. And then they went back to find him. And here's what Luke says about when they went back to find him. Here's what Jesus was doing, Luke 2.45. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him after three days. Here's how you know the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because I would not have left that detail in there. I don't want my wife to know how long I've not known where the kids are. Three days later, they find him in the temple sitting among the teachers. And what's he doing? He's listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and by his answers. So obviously, Jesus is astounding. He's amazing. The teachers of the law, as he's having this conversation around the scripture. So obviously, Jesus is graced by the Father. He knows more than a normal 12-year-old. He has a divine ability to converse, to dialogue about the scriptures. But also says that he was listening and asking them questions. He was listening and asking them questions. I wonder if Jesus was asking them questions just to impress them with the answers. But I kind of think he maybe genuinely had questions. And he actually listened in a way that led to conversation and the teachers were asking him questions, and it led to this amazement of who Jesus was. I wonder if he learned. Now, we know that he always knew that he was God, because in the Gospels, Jesus said, I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. He knew that he was God, because he said, the Father and I are one. He never forgot that part. He even was divinely infused, even in his human knowledge, he could discern the thoughts of people. But yet, at the same time, is it possible that Mary would share the oral traditions and Jesus learned that way? That he would go to the synagogue, listen to the reading of the scrolls of the scripture, and learn. After this scene, Mary and Joseph yank Jesus out of the temple and take him home. And on their way, here's how Luke concludes that portion. Then he went down in verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor. You know what the Greek word meaning is for increased? It's increased. That's it. It means to increase. It means to grow. It means to advance and progress. So Luke says Jesus as a boy, he increased. He grew in wisdom. So to grow in wisdom must mean that there was one moment where he had less wisdom than he had later. He grew mentally. 
He grew in stature. He grew physically. He got stronger. He grew in favor with God. Whoa, whoa, this is Jesus. Who is God? How could he grow in favor with God? I do not pretend to know all those answers. But here's what I think. I think the father had an ever-intensifying expression of delight in his son. To a point where at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens would open up and the father would say, this is my beloved son and in whom I am well pleased. He grew favor with people. He won people over. There was this winsome about him, this nature about him that brought people over. He grew mentally, even spiritually in favor with God, socially in favor with people, physically in stature. I think this is what was happening in the silent 18 years of Jesus' earthly life. Between the age 12 and 30, where we don't really have an account of what happened in the life of Jesus. It's the silent years. The scripture writers don't record what happened in those days. What was happening? He was growing, increasing wisdom, stature, and favor. Imagine part of his wisdom growing was wisdom even in and through the scriptures. Learning, growing in the written scripture, which would have been the Old Testament. And I kind of have this imagery as Jesus is learning the scrolls and hearing about it. He's got these deja vu moments. I remember writing this. Whoa, this is about me. (laughs) Because it is. It is about Jesus. He inspired every part of the scriptures of the Bible. In fact, Jesus said it like this in John 5, verse 39. He said, you, he said to the religious leaders, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet... They testify about me. It's all about me. Jesus is in the scriptures and he invites us to be in the scriptures. Now here's why I'm saying this. If Jesus, the word of God, had to learn scripture or to learn at least words, if he meditated, spoke, listened often to the scriptures, how much more? You and I, who are not God, who did not write the Bible, how much more are we invited into a daily rhythm of loving the scriptures? Learning, memorizing, internalizing, reading, meditating, speaking. These amazing words, which all testify to Jesus. Us joining Jesus in learning, knowing the scriptures, open up, opens up his heart to us. It invites us to the depths of his grace, his plan, the self-revelation of God himself. Oh, that we may be a people learning and growing in wisdom of his word. Not only did Jesus learn the scripture, he used the scripture. He spoke the scripture. He quoted the scripture. In critical moments of his life, he went to the scriptures. He went to the text. He went to the Old Testament. Here's a fascinating uh, data. Jesus quoted the Old Testament 78 times from 27 Old Testament books. In 78 instances in the New Testament, Jesus is quoting from 27 Old Testament books, quoting the scriptures of the Old Testament. And you look at all that Jesus said in the New Testament, all of his discourses, and you add all those verses up, it's 1,800 verses 1,800 verses of what Jesus has said. And out of the 1,800, 180, a tenth of what Jesus said were either direct quotes from the Old Testament or allusions to the Old Testament. A tenth of what we have recorded, we have reported in the discourse of Jesus across the New Testament 
180, one-tenth of it was either Jesus quoting the Old Testament or referring to a scene in the Old Testament. Jesus loved the scriptures. He spoke it. Now, I know that there are some even among Christians who don't believe that all of the scriptures are inspired. And some even argue that only the red letters, the words of Jesus, are inspired by God. But the only problem is Jesus took the whole Bible seriously. He took all of it. He saw all of it as God's word. And he relied, he used the scriptures in some of the hardest moments of his life. He saw it all as part of God's word. I want to look at a few instances where Jesus quotes the scripture in response to moments and how he used the scriptures. You know this, when Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He went to the scriptures. He quotes in Matthew 4 as the... As Satan comes to tempt him, what is he doing? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. It is written, he says to the enemy, at each of the temptation, he responds with, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It is written that you shall not test the Lord your God. It is written in the last of his temptations, he says, go away, Satan, for it is written, you should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When he was tempted, he went to the scriptures. And when the enemy tempts you with his lies, where do we go? We go to the written word of God. What is it that God has said? What is the truth of his word? We go to the scriptures and we stand assured on the written word of God. When Jesus was accused, he went to the scriptures. There's a moment in John 8 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The Pharisees come and accuse him. You can't possibly say that about yourself. We cannot believe the witness of one person. So what does Jesus do? He begins to quote Deuteronomy in Numbers again. Jesus in John 8, verse 17. He responded to the accusations of the religious leaders by saying, even in your law, by the way, let me bring out your own law that's written. It is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. He's saying, you're right. Don't just listen to one testimony, but in your law, it says two testimonies are worthy to listen to. I am the one who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me, sent, testifies about me. You're right, two witnesses? Well, here's two for you. <laughs> me and the Father testify about me. Jesus could defend without being defensive because he rested in the written word of God. He rested in the scriptures. He could defend without being defensive. When Jesus was revealing who he was, he often went to Scripture. There in the first sermon that Jesus gave in Luke 4, what's he doing? He's quoting Isaiah 61. Gets up in the temple in the synagogue and begins to read the words of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he begins to describe what the Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus for. And he says to those there, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, the chills that must have gone through them. When Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he's often quoting from Exodus 20. When he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry, and Matthew 1 talks about how even children are worshiping Jesus, and Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82, out of the mouth of babes will come praised to this Messiah. When Jesus cleanses the temple in Luke 19, he's quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7, that says, My Father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. 
He's going back to what the Father has already said to describe the heartbeat of the Father for his temple. And Jesus reveals himself. Where does he go? He goes to the scriptures. Next, when Jesus is questioned, he was questioned a lot. And every single time, where did Jesus go? In response to the questions, he went to the scriptures. Maybe not every time, but in most instances, he went to the scriptures when questioned. He went to what they already knew, what they already had written or read and studied in the law. In Matthew 18, religious leaders come and question Jesus on divorce and marriage. And they are trying to pin him down into one of the pharisaical schools of thought about when divorces were permissible. So they ask him a specific question about divorce, and Jesus does not fall into this trap. Rather, he just goes back to what God had already said. He begins to quote from Genesis. And here's what Jesus quotes from Genesis and says to these leaders. Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. That's a quote from Genesis 1 and Genesis 5. And he also said, for this reason, in quotes, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2.24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus uses this instance on a specific question about divorce to go back to what God had already said about life and marriage. Now we know that Jesus himself gave exemptions to divorce and how he allows divorces to be okay, but here he paints the design and the heart of God for marriage. I want to take a moment and pause and speak to this very topic. This is Pride Month in our country. And there are a lot of questions in our culture, in our society at large, about marriage, sexuality, and gender. So what is it that we say in response? How do we live when we're questioned on these things? Well, first of all, we love like crazy because God loves all people like crazy. He loves us regardless of who we are, Regardless of our sexual orientation, our gender orientation, he is crazy about every single person made in the image of God. The arms of Christ are open with compassion, with grace. So here's what I want to say. Bentry should be the most loving and safe place for those in the LGBTQ plus community. This is the most loving and safe place because Christ loves and in fact, if you're part of that community, I want you to know I love you. Bentry loves you. We are here for you. We want you here. There's a community of faith you can belong to. There are people you can do life with. We love you because God loves you. He cares for you. We don't run from people who disagree with us. We run, run towards them. With extravagant love and extravagant grace. And here's the second thing I want to say about this. When we are questioned on marriage, sexuality, and gender, 
we do what Jesus did. We go to the scripture. We go to the scripture. Because ultimately, my opinion doesn't matter. What matters is what God has to say. And Jesus here in this moment, he went straight to Genesis and said, haven't you read? Haven't you read what God has already said, what he's already written, that he has created them in the beginning, made them male and female? That's his response to the questions of gender. God created us male and female. And then he gives the response to the question of marriage. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is God's design, God's intention, his desire for the beginning of time for marriage and sexuality. It's one man, one woman, leaving their individual families and their individual paths and being joined together in this inseparable one flesh union. One suitable helper with another coming together. A man and a woman joining together, husband and wife, to do life together. This is what Jesus said, because this is what the Father said from the very beginning of time. And they are joined forever. And here's the deal. Our world is broken. Sin has disrupted that world that God perfectly created. And marriages fall apart. Marriages end in divorce, and we grieve when it happens. And we lovingly, compassionately walk with people with open arms when it does. And in the same way, sexuality can be disoriented. We can be confused about who we are, how we feel. And so we grieve, and we walk lovingly with people in their specific journey. But that never changes God's design, his original intent, his definition, his desire for marriage, for sexuality and gender. It's for one woman, one man, coming together and doing life together in covenant. Here's the deal. This deserves far more conversation because this isn't just a topic. For many, this is life. And it's hard It's messy because you're walking with people you love and you're restless on the inside. So I want you to know that elders and I, we are committed to walking with you through this. We're going to have more opportunities where we can come alongside and pastorally care for people. We want to do that because we speak to the hard stuff and we walk through the hard stuff. So when we're questioned about sexuality, gender, and marriage, We do what Jesus do. We love radically from the heart. And we go to the scriptures. That's what we do, church. I want you to know that. So Jesus. Jesus used the scriptures when tempted, when accused, when questioned. And there Jesus is on the cross. You know what Jesus is doing in the most excruciating pain of his life? He's thinking scripture. He's thinking the words of the Old Testament. When he said in Matthew 27, 46, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. And often rabbis in his day would quote from the first verse of a psalm to refer to the entire psalm. Here's an afternoon project, or sometime this week. Read Psalm 22 as if Jesus was thinking all of Psalm 22. 
It may revolutionize how you view Jesus on the cross. Yes, he was in excruciating pain, but he was trusting the Father through the scriptures. He held on to the hope of the resurrection and the reason for why he came through the scriptures. When Jesus said in Luke 23, verse 46, this, my spirit, I give to you, Father. He's quoting the words of David. The son of David is quoting David from Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You cut Jesus in every way. What flows out of him, what bleeds out of him is the scripture. Tempted, accused, questioned, in pain, in agony. He's speaking the scriptures. Oh, I long to be that because I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm that consistent that no matter what happens in pressure, in pain, what comes out of me is scripture. But I long to be that. I want us to be a people in pressure, in hard times, when you are hurt, when you are betrayed, when you are accused, when you are mistreated. What comes out of us is not just our opinion, our thought, or anger and frustration. What comes out of us is the very word of God, the mind of Christ overflowing in and through us. Oh, may we be like that. Jesus in the scriptures. Here's what I think Jesus would have us take away today. A few things. Scripture can be trusted and scripture should be treasured. Scripture can be trusted and it should be treasured. So many reasons why we can trust the scriptures. I'm going to come back to this at some point in the future. You can trust the reliability of scripture. You can look to internal evidence. You can look to historical evidence. You can look to manuscript accuracies. You can look to the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can look to fulfilled prophecies. So many reasons we can trust in the reliability of scripture. But can I just give you one simple reason why we can trust the scriptures? Jesus trusted the scriptures. He knew it, he internalized it, he spoke it, he quoted it, he relied on it. And if it's good for Jesus, it's good for me. <laughs> he trusted in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus said it like this, John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. You can trust it, it can't be broken. We can trust the scripture, but also we should treasure the scripture. It's not enough to trust that we must treasure it, we must cherish it, we must hold on to it with our life. Jesus said it like this in John 6, verse 63. The spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Do you need life? Jesus is saying, come back to my words. Here's where power is. Here's where life is. Here's where the spirit has breathed out the words of God. It's in the scriptures. Paul told the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, this is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God. Which also works effectively in you who believe. They cherished it. They welcomed it not as a human message, but as the word of God. I think about countries who first time, for the first time, received the word of God in their language. Oh, how they treasure it. They hold on to it because it's the greatest treasure in it, our spirit and life. Oh, may we welcome it in such a way that effectively works in those who believe, changes us, transforms us. The Word of God is alive, it is active, it is life changing, life transforming, and through it, Jesus gives life. Why? How does the Word of God do all of those things? It's because of this. We recognize God's voice. 
through God's word. We recognize God's voice through God's word. Don't we often want to hear God's voice? Oh, how amazing if God just audibly spoken. He has spoken. And through his word, we become familiar with his voice. I want to invite my daughter Avery to help me illustrate this. Come on up here, baby. My Avery girl is now six years of age, and she is all growing up. Hey, baby. I brought her a unicorn step stool. That's the first time we've had a unicorn step stool on the platform. One of Avery and I's favorite things is to do trust falls. Now, I don't fall and she catches me. She falls, I catch her. We'll do it in the pool. And then after bats, she loves to do trust falls. Uh, usually my mom's not around, so we're pretty responsible. We only keep the steps still pretty short. So what Avery will do is she'll climb on the steps, and then she'll do a trust fall. Now, here's the deal. If I don't say anything to her, even if she knows that I'm behind her, she doesn't fully trust me to fall on me. What activates her trust is my voice. So if I'm silent, she's not going to do this. But if I'm here behind, him, behind her saying, Avery, you can trust me. You can follow me. I'll catch you. I'll be here for you. I love you. Fall back on me. You can trust me, Avery. Wow. <laughs> she just fell. Let's do it again just to make sure you trust me. Avery, I love you. Let me catch you, baby. Fall back. Come on. Do it like you made it. Woo. I have yet to drop her. Thank goodness. Here's the deal. Even when I was silent, I was there, but it's my voice that built trust in her, courage in her. God's always near. He's always for us. But through his word, we hear his voice. And when we hear his voice, our heart grows in trusting him. Our heart grows in courage. Our heart is encouraged and we take leaps of faith because we can hear the voice of our Father. And the more we become familiar with His voice, the higher places we'll fall from just because God said it, we'll do it. We'll jump into deeper ends because we trust the voice of God. His voice is in His Word. Thank you, baby girl. Give her a hand. But here's the deal. We don't just hear God's word with our head. We must hear it with our heart. We must hear it with our heart. And here's what Psalm 119 says in verse 11, 14, and 18. I have treasured your word where in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. The heart in the Hebrew times is a place of emotions, your soul. It's the deepest part of you, your mind, the will, and emotions. We can't just have it in here. We got to feel it. We got to know it. It's got to take over in the deepest part of our life. And here's one way that God has helped me treasure his word in my heart. It's by praying the scriptures. Praying the scriptures. Last week we talked about prayer, and today we're talking about the scriptures. But I don't want you to listen to them as two separate disciplines. Prayer is powerful on its own, and the scripture is powerful on its own. But when they come together, baby, it's life-changing. Yeah. <laughs> it's transforming. Because it goes from here to here. We hide it deep in our heart. It's transformative. So I'm encouraging you today. Jump into a Bible plan if you already aren't on one. And when you're there, when you get to the end of a scripture, a passage, stop before you move on and pray those scriptures. 
Pray for you. Pray for your family. Listen to it deep in your soul. And if you're going through a hard time, guess what? Google it. You Google everything else. Why not Google a Bible verse that speaks to what you're going through and pray it. If you're new to the scriptures, begin in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just let God open your heart to who Jesus is and pray. When you do, you are quoting the very words of God back to him. And you know when you're praying the scripture, it is God's will because his spirit has breathed life through his word. Would you stand with me? We're out of time. But I want you to do this. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And I'm going to read to you, pray over you the words of God. Just listen to these words and let it give you life. Here's the voice of God through his word. You were chosen when he planned creation. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. You were not a mistake for all your days are written in his book. Psalm 139, 15 to 16. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 14. He knit you together in your mother's womb. Psalm 139, 13. His plan for your future has always been filled with hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. He loves you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, 3. His thoughts toward you are countless. Psalm 139, 17 to 18. He has never forgotten you. Isaiah 49, 15. He rejoices over you with singing. Zephaniah 3, 17. You are his treasured possession. Exodus 19, 5. He wants to show you great and marvelous things. Jeremiah 33, 3. He is a father who comforts you in all your troubles. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. When you are brokenhearted, he is close to you. Psalm 34, 18. He carries you close to his heart. Isaiah 40, 11. One day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and he'll take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. Revelation 21, 3 to 4. You are loved. John 3, 16. You are chosen. Colossians 3, 12. You are holy. Ephesians 1, 4. And lastly, you are his forever. Ephesians 1, 5.